Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay authenticity guarantee and you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head turning handbag, a watch that says it all jewelry that makes you look like the gem or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly ebay gets it so look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch stitch sole and logo is checked by experts with ebay authenticity guarantee you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach ensure your next purchase is the real deal visit ebay.com for terms This is The Guardian. Welcome to Weekend, a podcast that helps you switch off from your busy day-to-day and find entertainment and inspiration in the best Guardian and Observer writing from the week. You can either listen to this as one podcast or play each article as individual listens. Just scroll down the description on the podcast page for the timings of what we are featuring. Weekend is taking a little break. So this week, we've picked some of our favourite pieces from the last few months, just in case you missed them. Coming up, L. Hunt reveals the incredible story of one man's struggle to rebuild his life after being struck by lightning. Amelia de Moldenberg recounts her journey from the chicken shop to Vanity Fair's Oscars party. And Chloe Hamilton describes navigating the heartbreak of fertility shoulder to shoulder with her twin sister. Before we begin, just a warning. There's a bit of bad language in this episode. Now, Scott Knudsen was holding his baby when a lightning strike suddenly tore through his body. Here he reflects on the challenging, laughter-filled path to reclaiming his health and identity by L. Hunt, read by James Sobel Kelly. For Scott Knudsen, it was shaping up to be a good day. It was his daughter's first birthday, and his wife Tracy had just called to say she had a surprise for him. Knudsen had been in town, fetching hay and running chores for their ranch in rural Texas. He thought Tracy might have got him another horse, but when he got home, it was even better. Tracy was there, with baby Haley, and they had washed his dirty tractor. Now, nearly 20 years later, still on the same ranch, Knudsen smiles at the memory. Oh my goodness, it made me so happy. It was mid-afternoon on a July day in 2005. Knudsen was 37 years old. In the distance, there was a thunderstorm. He could see the rain clouds, 15 or so miles away, but where they stood, there were blue skies and calm. Several of their horses were out to pasture. There were chickens around, pecking at the dirt. Tracy handed Haley to Knudsen to hold. He remembers it as a contented moment. It was one of those young couple happy moments. It was so peaceful. And then, just like that, it changed. 
Suddenly, a lightning bolt struck Knudsen, entering through his head and exiting through his left hand. He remembers bright light and the loudest noise. The horses ran for cover, while pipes that had been buried deep underground lurched to the surface. In their home, 300 yards, 275 meters from where they stood, the television blew out. Then, just as abruptly, the chaos passed. Knudsen was still standing, but Haley had somehow ended up in Tracy's arms in the commotion. I knew we'd been hit by lightning, he says. We started laughing. There was just something ludicrous about it. There were blue skies. How in the world could that have happened? In fact, lightning is one of nature's most frequently occurring spectacles, with around 3 million flashes globally every day, equating to 1.4 billion strikes each year, or 44 strikes every second. In the U.S., about 40 million lightning strikes hit the ground annually, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Nonetheless, the odds of being struck are slim, less than one in a million. Of those unlucky ones, the majority, almost 90%, survive. In 15 years, from 2006 to 2021, 444 deaths from lightning were recorded across the entire U.S. Knudsen is a fifth-generation Texan, born and raised in Georgetown, 75 miles away from Fredericksburg, his closest city. Now 54 years old, he appears on a video call as the quintessential cowboy, wearing a white Stetson that accentuates his tan, in front of a wall covered with bridles and reins. Knudsen and his wife bought their ranch soon after learning she was pregnant with Haley. Tracy was a city girl, he says, but Knudsen had grown up knowing how to read the land, how to watch the weather, which risks to take. Lightning strikes were a known danger. Knudsen had once seen a tree get hit, instantly killing the cows beneath it. But that afternoon, there was no sign, no time to take cover. After the impact, his brain felt like an old TV that had been unplugged. You remember back in the old days, all those fuzzies, and it would take a minute to reboot? The three of them made their way back to the house, shell-shocked, but apparently unharmed. I thought I was okay, says Knudsen. I'm not trying to be a macho cowboy or anything. I just thought we were going to be fine, because I've had hard hits my whole life doing what I do. Though her ears were still ringing and her eyes smarting, Tracy left to go pick up Haley's birthday cake from town, a half-hour drive away. She wouldn't have left me, but I said, I'm fine, Knudsen says. We were trying to celebrate Haley, to be good parents. By the time Tracy got home, an hour or so later, Knudsen hadn't moved. His head and hand felt as if they were burning. I couldn't do anything. But he only realized something was seriously wrong when he saw Tracy's horrified expression. The upper half of his face was solid black. From here up, Knudsen gestures to the bridge of his nose. It just went south really quick after that. Knudsen only knows what happened next from Tracy's retelling. The trauma of the event was still catching up to them, and seeking to call a hospital, Knudsen tried to dial using his computer keyboard and not the nearby phone. I was all messed up, he says. Just totally fried. The word is apposite. As sharply as lightning might split the horizon, 
In fact, a bolt is only two to three centimeters wide. This small channel, about the same width as a thumb, carries a charge so intense that its temperature is 30,000 degrees Celsius, five times hotter than the surface of the sun. It was touch and go as to whether they would make it to the hospital in Fredericksburg, Knudsen says. It was bad. It was so bad. But they did. A doctor gave the three of them a cursory checkup, but admitted she wasn't sure what to do. They didn't know what to look for, Newton recalls. There wasn't that chapter in the book. After some back and forth, the family were eventually seen by someone with relevant expertise. The lightning had traveled down the arm in which Knudsen had been holding Haley, but thank God she was fine, he says, fervent still. Tracy was fine after a couple of days, and I... Knudsen gives a one-shouldered shrug. And I just wasn't. By the grace of God, I'm still here, because I shouldn't be. The physical toll was immense. Knudsen developed heart palpitations. A brain scan revealed his cognition had also been affected. Everything was just going fast, trying to reprogram. His hand felt as if it was on fire for months afterwards. The spot on his head where the lightning made contact took years to heal. More after-effects took time to reveal themselves, such as fluid around Knudsen's lungs. Nearly a year later, when he was at the cinema, I was eating some popcorn when all the fillings in my teeth fell out, he says. It just tore up my body. Some challenges, however, were immediate. Knudsen's memory had been almost entirely wiped, including his knowledge of how to perform basic skills. I couldn't read or write, he says. Even in his depleted state, Knudsen was determined not to put more strain than was necessary on his family. In part, Knudsen was helped by his strong Christian faith, but equally, he had confidence in his ability to recover. By the time of the lightning strike, Knudsen had already suffered dozens of broken bones from breaking in horses and helping out on the ranch. Some had been serious. At age 16, for example, a horse had fallen on his leg, prompting fears that it would have to be amputated. Knudsen's prior experience meant that he knew to approach recovery with a survival mindset. I never let myself get to a low point, ever, with any injury, because once you're down there, it's a much longer ride to get back to the top. Instead, he says, I just accepted it, and we made it fun. Tracy taught him to read and write again, alongside Haley. My wife went from one kid to two, says Newton. Together, they learned numbers using the phone's keypad and watched children's music group The Wiggles on TV. Haley was much better than he was at coloring between the lines. It was a struggle, you know. The hand-eye coordination, the mind coordination. I had to relearn a lot of stuff. After three months, Knudsen started making faster progress, but he was still unable to drive or work on the ranch. His muddied thinking and slow responses put him at too great a risk of injury. For Tracy, it meant more work to keep the home fires burning. For her husband, it amounted to a loss of identity. After all these years of being a perfect cowboy, it didn't make sense, says Knudsen. He recalls watching Tracy doing the rounds feeding the animals, while he sat at the window, powerless to help. 
It was such a low feeling, but also such a proud feeling because my wife, man, she just gritted up and did it. Newton believes that he's always held the power of positive thinking, ingrained in my DNA, but the lightning strike tested it to the limit. He sought out situations that would give him a lift. I would just find my peace, whether it was trying to read a book or the Bible, or going to the barn and seeing the horses. Spending time with Tracy and Haley reliably reset a bad mood. We laughed a lot. But on days when joy was elusive, Knudsen would seek out comedy, a Seinfeld episode, or Tim Allen, or teach himself something new. At the end of the day, I'd figure, I'm better today, because I learned this. That one victory in the morning could change my day. Challenges motivated Knudsen. Sometimes people would make comments such as, well, you might not ever be able to read again, but at least you're alive. They meant well, but their perception of his ability rankled. Just lights my fire, he grins. I want to do it. Not for them, but for me. Knudsen felt a deep-seated aversion to seeing himself as a victim. Instead, he fed his curiosity. This happened to me for a reason. What is this reason? How am I going to get better? It doesn't matter where you start the day as long as you're not there when you finish it. What he appreciated most was friends telling him, I knew you'd be fine. Six months after the strike, Knudsen was reading and writing again. He was back in the driver's seat of his truck, and he was able to feed his beloved horses. The real milestone, he jokes, was when he could color between the lines. Once I hit that stride, man, there was no looking back. The past, however, continued to trip Knudsen up. His memories predating the strike, of his parents, his childhood, his wedding day, in large part did not return. Tracy and his relatives told him stories and showed him photos, so that I would feel like a part of the family. And now I do, Newton says. It feels like I was there. But there was definitely a learning curve, especially as he re-entered the world beyond the ranch. Newton had not publicized his injury. I didn't want to bring anybody down. And when out and about in Fredericksburg, he feared inadvertently snubbing someone he had known. That always made me nervous. I didn't want to go out because I didn't want to be disrespectful. When Knudsen was greeted by an unfamiliar face, either Tracy would lean over and give me the notes, or I'd go talk to him like I knew him, and then connect the dots. Eventually, he gained back his confidence, and soon enough, his absent memories were supplanted by new ones. Now I just tell everybody hello, which I probably did before. The physical trauma was more insidious. Long after the strike, Knudsen found that his heart and mind were both still inclined to race. Those heart palpitations only stopped a year ago. After two years, Tracy got him a border collie. The dog went everywhere with Knudsen and was a steadying presence. Stroking him would just calm my brain. I really needed something to slow me down. Being around animals in general was therapeutic. Horses and dogs, man, says Nudes appreciatively, but I get peace watching the chickens just scratch. His near-death experience taught Nudesen to take care of himself and be present in the moment. He is in better shape than he was before, works out daily, and has even started doing yoga on YouTube. Don't tell anyone, he grins. But most vital of all, he's been cultivating that life-saving sense of gratitude. 
Knudsen has his favorite Bible verses on display around his house, along with phrases he finds motivating and pictures of loved ones. I don't think I ever take anything for granted. Knudsen has since made his story of survival pivotal to his business, rebranding his ranch Lightning K. The Lightning Bolt logo appears everywhere, from his chaps to his trucks. In part, this rebrand was to embrace an experience that could easily have ended in tragedy. We didn't want to run away from it. It happened. We're going to make the most of it. But as the self-styled cowboy entrepreneur, Knudsen also speaks publicly about his recovery to inspire those who've also suffered trauma, or even just setbacks. We talk about the lightning and how we flipped it to good. Now, when Knudsen passes the spot where he was hit, as he does several times a day, he feels a sense of accomplishment, if he even thinks about it at all. Once in a while, I will think about how blessed I've been, he says. But I'm usually thinking, I gotta feed the chickens. That was Struck by Lightning. My face burned and my memory disappeared. Here is how I made it back. By L. Hunt. Read by James Sobel Kelly. Next. Viral phenomenon Chicken Shop Date has taken its deadpan creator, Amelia de Moldenberg, all the way to the red carpets of LA. So is she on the verge of becoming as famous as the people she interviews? By Laura Snapes. Read by Brownie Rule. You're about to get onto the red carpet for one of the most exclusive award ceremonies of the year, a voice booms. It's showtime. It looks more like Amelia de Moldenberg and I are walking down a dark corridor. This isn't Hollywood, but London's Madame Tussauds. Is that a real person? She jumps as we pass a plastic paparazzo. Then, a human photographer fawns over us as if we were real stars. Except... Oh my goodness, it's you! He giggles, overcome. Is this still a bit? Or has the presence of an actual celeb melted Madame's waxy fourth wall? It's the latter. He wants a photo. But his camera is fake and he has no phone. How would you take it then? Says de Moldenberg, bemused. At least the fake photographer gets to experience her trademark sharp shooting. As host of the comedy interview series Chicken Shop Date, or CSD, De Moldenberg takes celebrities out for nuggets, purportedly on her quest for true love, although her exaggerated awkwardness doesn't exactly make for traditional romance. So how do you sext? She asks Ed Sheeran one episode. Wow. In person? To rapper Fuse ODG, did you have dreams of being an electrician? And infamously, can you remember any of the rap that you did? To Louis Theroux. He did spawning last year's best meme by reciting the My Money Don't Jiggle Jiggle It Folds rap from Weird Weekends. The Theroux episode of CSD has now been viewed 11 million times. As someone who's always been so interested in pop culture, to be part of a big pop culture moment like that was really amazing, says de Moldenberg. It wasn't a one-off. More recently, de Moldenberg, 29, has been hosting the red carpet at glitzy awards parties including the Vanity Fair bash at the Oscars, as legacy brands lunge for her ability to mint weird viral gold. At the 2022 GQ Man of the Year Awards, Andrew Garfield declared his fandom. She praised his armpits. <laughs> 
He admired the rubbery ropes of her complicated dress and said he'd do CSD. Their nervy one-upmanship indicated undeniable chemistry, titillating Twitter. They met again at the Golden Globes in January and only grew more flustered. I'm scared of what it could turn into, said Garfield. It was all anyone remembered about the ceremony. Nora Ephron couldn't have written it better. As we enter the awards party room at Two Swords, de Moldenberg, in black biker jacket and jumpsuit, compares our entrance to reality. The red carpet is the most overwhelming place, she says, leaning in as we try not to topple Priyanka Chopra Jonas. There's so many eyes on you. You're meant to be the most perfect version of yourself. And you're around the most beautiful, successful people, so you can't help but compare yourself. It is worse in the photographer's pen, she says. Mostly they don't know who she is and want her to budge for Jennifer Coolidge. If there's a sign with her name on to tell them who she is, it's often misspelt. But tellingly, de Moldenberg's name, or thereabouts, is on the signs. Most people interviewing the talent are not going to get their photo taken, she says hesitantly. So I'm in kind of a different bracket. We encounter an alternate reality in which a waxwork Steven Spielberg is directing a bulbous, sauntering Shrek. He was coming out of the Vanity Fair Oscars party as I was going in, says de Moldenberg. Spielberg, not Shrek. Surrounded by celebs, she felt anonymous until the actors Sophie Turner and Zoe Deutsch recognised her. But at home, de Moldenberg is becoming better known than some of her dates, turning the melamine-coated tables on her show's premise. Chicken Shop Date thrives on incongruity. Why would a celebrity meet some random girl for chips? De Moldenberg started it as a column interviewing rappers in a youth club magazine and in 2014 pivoted to YouTube. The dynamic is that no one really wanted to be there, she says. Her first hit was People Just Do Nothing's Asim Chowdhury, in character as foul-mouthed wannabe mogul Chabuddy G. He almost made her corpse although usually she can poke a face for Britain, whether telling Maya Jammer she'd never heard of her then-boyfriend, an MC called Mike, i.e. Stormzy, or serenading Dave on a toy piano. The thought of dropping the mask keeps de Moldenberg awake, she says. But I've made it part of my shtick. People think I'm being awkward, but actually I've just forgotten where I'm at, so I'll ask, what's your favourite colour? And they're like, you're so funny! The real de Moldenberg is hyper-aware and direct a successor to Paula Yates, Ruby Wax and pop world era Simon Amstel, and her facade conceals deep research. There's a lot at stake for her guests. You can't sleepwalk through it, says CSD fan Zane Lowe. You're talking to someone who sees past the veneer of the entertainment business, so you can't phone it in. Especially men. De Moldenberg subverts the cliché of the sleazy male chat show host, leaving guys to parry her disconcerting advances without overstepping. It's quite bad, I never think about their nerves, she admits. I'm too wrapped up in mine. Some try to outfox her. The 1975's Matty Healy goaded her to kiss him. She pecked his forehead. Ed Sheeran told viewers, she's actually a very lovely person. But de Moldenberg gets the final say with a razor-sharp sub-seven-minute edit. She found Sheeran's comment funny, so kept it in. Awkwardness is part of life, but it's edited out of what we consume. She has a confession. I would never go on CSD. What? It's too intense. What if people think you're not good at flirting? 
Yet the calibre of celebrities keen to share a boneless box keeps growing. Rosalia, Jack Harlow, England's lionesses, and PRs are desperate to fling their clients into de Moldenberg's deep fat fryer. At a talent meeting yesterday, I turned down everyone apart from one, she says, but keep stum. Ultimately, she wants to flatter her dates. They get courtesy edit approval. Only footballers have flinched. A player's team asked to take out all references to flirting, she says. My blood was boiling. Louis Theroux complimented her for revealing a philosophical side of rapper Central C. I make an effort to show the actual person, not the constructed person in their music videos, she says. In an era of filters and heavy image management, CSD reminds you how little it takes, just ketchup and strip lighting, to reveal something unexpected and human. As she struggled for budget, she pays the chicken shops to shut and hires security. De Moldenberg tried to sell. Channel 4 declined. BBC Three wanted the copyright, so she declined. Then a big media company wanted to buy the rights for £500, she gawps. And I said no. I'm so happy I said no to all these things. It stayed on her YouTube channel. She started a production company and began profiting from views, got management, and recently, a starry US agent. Late last year, management rang. De Moldenberg panicked, assuming she'd been cancelled. It was the Golden Globes. She got to work, prepping questions for every nominee, presenter and guest. She shows me her mile-long Google Doc of prep. I don't like showing my process, it cringes me out. But I'm overthinking it, as usual. On the red carpet, she had a mountain of cue cards, ready for anyone. She wanted big names. I was like, I'm going to get Rihanna. But many A-listers breezed past. She still danced with Henry Winkler and got Guillermo del Toro to rub her lucky egg. Nevertheless, I ended up leaving the carpet really disappointed. Watching the rushes, she felt marginally better. Especially the Andrew Garfield one. For him, she only prepped one question, which she garbled three times. You have an affinity to playing religious characters, as he howled with laughter. Are you actually going to ask a serious question? That's not even a question. I knew it would be a vibe, she says confidently. It shows that you can get one really amazing interview and that's all that matters. The Oscars provided the year's other viral red carpet moment, the model Ashley Graham's excruciating Hugh Grant interview. Watching live from her hotel, de Moldenberg knew how she would have played it. Seemingly, he didn't want to do the interview, or didn't see the big fuss about the Oscars, even though he'd agreed to give out an award, she laughs. So I would just say that. Well, why are you here then? Often what I do feels like stating the obvious, but I think people aren't used to that. Or maybe my obvious isn't everyone else's obvious. De Moldenberg's aim is to make something that doesn't feel like something you've seen before. She set her bar high at primary school, just down the road from Madame Tussauds. She grew up in Marylebone, central London, mum a librarian, dad a PR executive and labour councillor. She was neither gifted nor hopeless but an extreme striver of the mid-tier. It's probably just wanting to impress my parents, she says. I wanted to show them I got chosen to do this. She got a prize for effort in every year, says mum Linda Hardman. De Moldenberg was gutted she was too young for S-Club Juniors and dragged her mum to Oxford to audition for the film The Golden Compass, despite not having read it. 
she did manage to bag a Newsround Press Pack reporter gig. I always felt special and happy when I was doing those things, she says. Maybe that's still what I'm doing now. Determined to become editor of Vogue, at 17 she joined a youth club that ran its own magazine. She liked pop, but everyone else liked grime, and she wanted to understand it. CSD was born, which de Moldenberg continued on YouTube when she went to study at Central St. Martins. These origins have prompted periodic criticism about optics, a white woman interviewing black men in chicken shops, and media gatekeeping. While de Moldenberg doesn't think people have a problem with the former, she's alert to the latter. There is an issue with access within the media, she says. There's a need for more diversity and access. At the same time, she says, her show is DIY. She wasn't anointed by powerful execs. If you remove CSD from the equation, the problem is not solved. Unfortunately, we're mid-conversation when Madame Tussaud's routing leaves us no choice but to strap into a ride touring waxy scenes from ye olde England. It's a systemic problem, continues de Moldenberg as Shakespeare scribbles away. She never films with all-white crews and fundraises for arts access and youth services charities. Her old youth club has gone. That wasn't necessarily needed for me, but for people from disadvantaged backgrounds, that was really crucial. Watch a lot of CSD and you notice that scenes of guests celebrating these spaces survive her edit. There should be more things like that to level the playing field, she shouts, as we're forced to recline and watch marionettes frolic in the Great Fire of London. Although major stars now hanker for a CSD, de Moldenberg will never not be interviewing rappers, she says, after we escape the puppet hellfire. She laughs. My type will always probably be that. She intends to end the show with Drake who has promised to do it. Handily, he is Madame Tussaud's newest superstar. Oh my God, says de Moldenberg as we meet his suggestive stare. He looked exactly like that when I met him. She gets a selfie. They met at Wireless 2018. Covid scuppered a planned CSD shoot in 2020. I think what'll happen is he'll message and say, I'm in London, let's do it tomorrow. I've got everything ready, even handmade props. She is ready for CSD to end. It's so much of my identity. Plus, she thinks it interferes with her love life. Maybe because I have a dating show, guys don't take me seriously. Or they have a preconceived idea of what it would be like to go on a date with Amelia. Her success has previously intimidated men. I want to meet someone where I can say, I'm about to interview Drake and not feel it's bruised their ego. Has the show's newfound starriness also changed its essence? Surely things are different when Shania Twain is throwing nuggets into your mouth in Chicken Cottage. De Moldenberg disagrees. It retains its integrity because I'm in control, she says. She doesn't feel her new fame affects it. If anything, I've just become more confident. While she defines herself as an interviewer and dreams of her own chat show, her next goal is TV writing. She's awaiting notes on her first draft for a script about teenage hedonism, though her ambitions feel looser now to when she was younger. I feel like I've been trapped by my own brain, she explains. Like I've had such pressure to achieve something that now I've done it, I'm free from the plan I created for myself. She wants her next project to feel true to her voice. Watching CSD now, it doesn't feel like her. The Andrew Garfield moment showed her that my true personality is also interesting, she says. Before, I thought, people like my deadpan side, so let's stick to that. 
I'm realising that me is good enough. We behold Little Mix, and a couple ask her for a selfie. The increasingly recognisable de Moldenberg is figuring out her public-facing identity. People shouldn't know everything about me, she says. But I want people to know that I'm multifaceted, and sometimes I feel frustrated that maybe people think I'm one-dimensional. She's rarely publicly vulnerable, I note. Isn't that quite telling, she says, wondering if it's common to interviewers. They ask for it from others, and they don't do it themselves. It could be self-preservation, she says, especially if you worry about always having done the best. She's agitated about bettering herself. Do I sound really intense? Sometimes I wish I was more chill. Finally, we exit the gift shop. It's funny who chooses to come here, she says. I guess people are obsessed with celebrity, and I include myself in that. Maybe we fancy them, or want to be friends, or maybe the coolest thing is to be your own person without wanting to be like anyone else. But that's very hard to master, and celebrities provide some inspiration, however sad that might seem to some people. De Moldenberg seems close to mastering it, despite still spending 70% of my time fantasising about greater success. Then I set myself up for real disappointment. Maybe that's simply the logical outcome of dating hot celebs. It's hard not to let your mind run away with you, she laughs. It's really disappointing when Jack Harlow doesn't actually text you back. She tries to remember that achieving her wildest fantasies rarely goes how she had imagined. Speaking of which, when is Andrew Garfield doing CSD? Who knows when? And he better do it before I end the bloody show. Maybe he won't, and he's missed his chance, she says tartly. De Moldenberg isn't missing hers. She hails a cab home to get ready for a party. I really am in the mood to fall in love. And maybe if I end the show, I actually will. She started going out more, and knows that if she wants to meet someone, she's got to get out into the real world. That was Awkwardness is a Part of Life. Amelia de Moldenberg on Dates, Deadpan Jokes and Flirting with Andrew Garfield by Laura Snapes. Read by Brani Rule. We'll be back after this short break. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Welcome back to Weekend. Now, as identical twins... Lydia and Chloe Hamilton shared everything. But when Lydia had her second miscarriage a few days before Chloe gave birth, it would test their bond to the limit. Here, Chloe shares an intimate account of their journey. Read 
by Serena Mantegi. A word of warning, Chloe talks in depth about miscarriages, which some listeners might find upsetting. I was days away from giving birth and was discussing pain relief with my NCT friends when the WhatsApp message came through from my twin sister. No baby. To the point, no frills, just like her. The message, a punch to the stomach, was followed by a sad face emoji that seemed both insufficient at conveying the agony felt by its sender and utterly devastating in its everydayness. My extremities went tingly, then numb, and suddenly I felt oddly hollow and weightless, as though someone had scooped out my insides and replaced them with helium. And then, another punch to the stomach, a real one this time. My unborn son reminding me that I wasn't in fact hollow or indeed full of helium, I was full of baby, and my sister, my other half, my womb mate, was not. It is a myth, I'm sorry to say, that twins are psychic, although it's one my identical twin sister Lydia and I often played up to at parties by agreeing answers to set questions. She was always thinking of a triangle, I was always thinking of the colour blue, But when she messaged me just after lunch one Friday at the beginning of February 2021, asking if I was free to chat, I knew she was going to tell me she was pregnant. Perhaps it was twin instinct, or perhaps it was simply because my partner and I had that weekend been discussing our own plans to start a family. But I was right. She was. Jealousy is a natural human emotion – but it is, I suspect, one that is felt more acutely between twins. Lydia and I had, have, still, I think, a crippling desire for fairness. When we were tiny, we would eat hula hoops in step, one at a time, just to make sure we had an equal number. So it's little wonder that when Lydia's news broke, I was as envious as I was delighted. With just two pink lines on a stick... My sister was sucked into a world of hospital appointments, scans and baby names, while I was still scrabbling around with cycle lengths, basal body temperatures and figuring out when the hell I was going to ovulate. It wasn't fair. Eight days later, Lydia sent me a voice note. She was anxious. You could hear it in her tone. The clear blue digital test she'd taken that morning hadn't shown the correct number of weeks, and the pink dye on a second test seemed duller than the one she'd taken a few days before. She'd googled, checked the forums, and suspected that her pregnancy was slipping away. She had a blood test that day. It was inconclusive. And then, the next day, Valentine's Day, another pregnancy test came back fainter than faint. I think I'm about to miscarry, she messaged. I'm so heartbroken. If jealousy is felt acutely between twins, then so too is grief. Separated, as we were, by lockdown rules, we communicated over WhatsApp that day. I, rather helplessly, suggested podcasts that might distract her, 
and she sent me photos of her dog next to her on the sofa. The next day, early, another message came through. I've started to bleed this morning. And so Lydia lost her first baby. Today, reading back through the messages we sent at the time, I realised that on top of the tragedy, the everyday business of being a twin continued. In the days that followed, celebrity gossip was exchanged, opinions on house renovations sought, work dilemmas shared. Our closest friend had her baby, and we discussed that at length. I'd guessed she'd call him that, did you? We talked about how funny her dog looked in his cone after an operation. We planned a house move for my partner and me. The move to our new house, our first home together, is significant because it was when my partner and I had always planned to start trying for a baby. The house together represented stability, security and, in lieu of a wedding cancelled due to Covid, a certain commitment to one another. Except our move came just two days after Lydia started miscarrying. I was due to ovulate the following week, and my twin, the closest person to me, my flesh and blood, was still actively losing her baby. While I was dutifully weeing on ovulation sticks each afternoon, her partner was accompanying her each time she visited the bathroom, sitting with her, his hand in hers, while she wiped away the blood. I had to ask. Did she want us to wait? We could, I told her. Still separated by lockdown restrictions, we WhatsApped. I want to say yes, but is that bad? She wrote. I don't and shouldn't have control over what you do, and that isn't fair. I don't want to be that sort of sister. Of course, neither of us knew how long it would take me to get pregnant, or how long it would take her. We opted to see how things panned out. Three weeks later, I took a pregnancy test. There was a whisper of a line. Nothing concrete enough to tell my partner, who I suspected would need the news in black and white. I sat on it until lunchtime when Lydia sent me a message. How many days past ovulation are you? I told her. Told her too about the whisper. She asked to see a picture. We both agreed there was something there, but neither of us could be sure. That night I took another test, and the whisper increased by a decibel. I feel sad, Lydia told me, and I stressed that that was okay, and I didn't expect her to be giddy with excitement. Then, the following morning, another pregnancy test. And there it was. The whisper suddenly a shout. Two clear streaks of pink confirmed what, really, I already knew. OMG, huge congratulations, came Lydia's message within minutes, the six exclamation marks working hard to conceal the pain I knew she was feeling. But then, later, she sent a voice note. I feel, she said, somehow both cheerful and stoic, like My baby has just switched wombs. To say my pregnancy wasn't affected by my sister's miscarriage would be a lie. I was anxious. My worries fuelled, I'm sure, by Lydia's loss. I analysed every cramp, every twinge, every new sensation. 
I expected to see blood every time I went to the toilet, and I took pregnancy tests obsessively, different brands, different times of day. I didn't throw any away, as if, in disposing of the evidence, I would tempt fate into disposing of the pregnancy itself. But, as the anxiety receded, and the scans provided more and more reassurance, it became apparent that it had been masking something more pervasive. A guilt that bit into my very core. That I was the one who was pregnant and not Lydia. That I dared feel anxious when surely I should only feel joy. We discussed my pregnancy. We couldn't not. But always on the understanding that if Lydia wanted to step back, she could. And sometimes she did. Ducking out of group WhatsApps or quietly disappearing to make cups of tea whenever the conversation came round to the baby. A baby I can now admit I found it hard to connect with. The intense guilt of his existence, healthy, strong, growing, overriding the love I should, surely, have felt. On the due date of Lydia's lost baby, we lit candles, and the next day, she got a positive pregnancy test. She sent me a photo of it. A digital test this time, with the magic word displayed almost nonchalantly on the tiny screen. Pregnant. I was fast approaching my due date by this point, and grossly, heavily uncomfortable. But suddenly, I felt a weight lifted. The guilt receding. For the first time, pregnancy was a shared experience. Me with my watermelon, Lydia with her sesame seed. In the days after her positive test, Lydia wasn't as anxious as you might imagine. She flitted between acknowledging that the worst could happen, I've been through the shit, if it happens again I know how to manage it, and getting excited about her baby. Should we talk about names? We discussed due dates scans, and the best pregnancy vitamins to take. Initially, at least, we felt untouchable and, thus, allowed ourselves to tempt fate. I don't know why, but I feel like things will be okay, I messaged a few days after the test. It feels right that this is your time. We gloried in the hope of it all. The bleeding was faint at first, Barely there. All normal, Lydia was told. Nothing to worry about. But, of course, we did. She booked an early scan for two weeks' time, and then, as quickly as it had come, the bleeding went, and we steadied ourselves. Still, our conversations changed. Lydia's voice notes were now imbued with a sense of unease, of encroaching dread. She still sent photos of her bloating stomach. I guess it's a good sign. But these were now accompanied by screenshots from a website that calculated her chance of miscarriage each day. I just can't visualise good news, she told me the night before her scan. And then, an hour later, had some more bleeding this evening. When Lydia woke the following morning, the day of her scan, she was bleeding dark red blood. I really think it's over, she messaged as she waited for her appointment. I still want to go to the scan. 
even if it's to say goodbye. I remember instinctively resting my hand on my stomach, trying to locate the steady kick, kick, kick of my baby's feet. That day I met my NCT friends, drank coffee, ate cake, still hoping, and I think believing there would be good news. But when my phone buzzed two hours later and my hand went again to my bump, I think I knew. I opened the message. No baby, it read. It is excruciating to witness someone else's grief and know you're about to make it worse, about to pour salt into their open, weeping wound. When Lydia had her first miscarriage, I had asked her if she wanted me to wait before trying for a baby. This time I had no such option. My baby was due. I was a careering train with no brakes. That afternoon, while Lydia went to hospital for a checkup, I returned home and lay on the sofa, paralysed by a visceral cocktail of grief and terror. As darkness crept across my living room floor, I didn't get up to switch on the light, choosing instead to lie in the pitch black, hands on my stomach, noting my baby's movements and saying to him over and over, not yet, please don't come yet, we need more time. I wanted to see my sister straight away, but I was also terrified that my very physicality, the protruding balloon of my stomach would be agony for her. When I did see her the next day, I tried to cover myself, layering jumpers, coats and scarves so as to hide my bump. But of course, when I hugged her, there was no hiding the expanse between us. The next nine days before my son arrived are now a blur. It's only by combing through the WhatsApp messages we sent each other at the time that I see how tortured we both were. Me trying not to draw attention to the fact that I was about to have my first baby and Lydia grieving the loss of her second. Three days before my son was born, I messaged her to say that if she didn't feel able to visit when he arrived, I would understand and, crucially, that her nephew would know how loved he was by his auntie, regardless of whether she was present. It was during one of these conversations that I realised Lydia wasn't just grieving the loss of her babies. She was also, in a way, grieving the loss of her twin. In her eyes, I was embarking on a new adventure, sailing into the unknown to a place where she couldn't join me. I arrived at this new place in mid-November 2021, when Fabian came, calmly, into the world after a 19-hour labour. Lydia, who, due to Covid restrictions, had been by my side via WhatsApp for the birth, messaged me minutes after he arrived. I didn't think it was possible to love you any more, but I'm bursting. I had sent a photo of my son tiny and red to the family group and, quick as a flash, my mum responded, he looks very like Lydia when she was born. And he did. I don't know why it was such a surprise that my baby looked so much like my twin, but it was remarkable. He had her round face and saucer-like eyes. 
I'm sure I wasn't the only one to wonder, in that moment, whether the baby that should have been a month old and in my sister's arms would have looked anything like the baby that was a minute old and in mine. We had to stay in hospital for a few days while Fabian recovered from an infection, but Lydia, still bleeding, visited us, bringing food, clean clothes, tiny sleep suits. She has since told me that those days were the hardest. I needed you so badly, and before I met Fabian, I was so angry that he got you. One day, leaving my son with his father, I escaped the stuffy ward and Lydia and I sat in Costa on the hospital concourse. Other patients and visitors went about their days as though nothing remarkable had happened. But for us, there had been a shift in the tectonic plates of our twinship. We had both undergone metamorphoses, had been reborn mothers, but while I had emerged babe in arms, she had not. We were, for the first time in our lives, separated, starkly, by our lived experiences. This separation was made physical when I returned to the ward after our coffee. Covid restrictions meant Lydia couldn't come in. Instead, she met her nephew through glass, gazing at him, now safely returned to my arms through the window isolating the ward from the real world. Back in my hospital bed, apart from my twin, I was tormented by the same grief and guilt that had hounded my pregnancy. Whenever I picked Fabian up, smelled him, held him to my breast to feed, I felt Lydia's losses keenly, and I cried often. Five days later, we were able to leave, and the next day, Lydia visited, the first of our friends and family to do so. Without a thought, I handed Fabian over, releasing him for the first time into arms that were not his father's or a medical professional's, and he nestled into her, gazing up at this new but familiar person with his hand on his chin as though deep in thought. And then, completely at ease in the cradle hold of my twin, he sighed contentedly, closed his eyes and fell asleep. I could write reams about Lydia's relationship with my son, her baby who switched wombs. Fourteen months on, he still looks like her, right down to the way they both scrunch their noses when they smile. He has her temperament as well. Happy-go-lucky, curious, kind, cheeky. Mostly, though, I'm in awe of how she loves him. At every turn, she has not just tolerated me having a baby when she does not, but has embraced it. When I asked her how she felt about him for this piece, she said, I feel like he's part of me. I'd fight to the death for him. She sees him often, usually at her request. If she's away, she will FaceTime him and he will beam gorgeously at his auntie on the screen. The trimmings of motherhood... The baby classes I go to, the joy of breastfeeding, the firm friends I've made, Lydia still finds difficult. But the baby himself? No, she says. That bit is remarkably easy. 
Her miscarriages bookended my pregnancy. It's not fair. We acknowledge that often. And while there is much I want to teach Fabian as he grows, to value friendship, to embrace silliness, to be kind, perhaps the most important thing I want him to know is that he exists in large part because of his auntie's strength of spirit and unceasing selflessness. If we'd waited, if she'd asked us to, we wouldn't have conceived him. Our sweet, happy boy made so curiously in her image. It's why, sometimes, on a difficult evening, when Fabian has only just fallen asleep after two hours of crying and is pressing his body so close to mine that I am teetering on the edge of our bed, tangling with insomnia and trying to accept that sleep may not come for me tonight. I lean in to smell his milky breath, brush my lips gently across his warm cheeks and whisper as quietly as I can, Thank you, thank you, thank you, Auntie Lydia. That was I Had a Baby Just As My Twin Sister Lost Hers. Would Our Relationship Ever Be The Same? by Chloe Hamilton. Read by Serena Manteghi. If you've been affected by any of the issues raised in this piece, we've included details of a helpline you can contact on the episode page at theguardian.com. That's all from us. This has been Weekend, a Guardian podcast. If you're enjoying it, please make sure to like, subscribe to and rate the podcast. Maybe even leave us a nice review. Just search for Weekend wherever you get your podcasts. This week's Best Of articles were read by James Sobel Kelly, Bryony Rule, and Serena Manteghi, and presented by me, Savannah Ayode-Greaves. This episode was produced by Rachel Porter and Jack Claremont. The executive producer was Ellie Bury. Join us again next Saturday. Thanks for listening. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay authenticity guarantee and you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head turning handbag, a watch that says it all jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.